Today on Ag News Daily. So unfortunately, there are some extreme organizations out there who are just opposed to using animals for food. It really doesn't matter how well they're raised, what the standards of animal welfare are. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. My name is Delaney Howell, and I'm joined once again by Mike Pearson. Mike, you're safely traveled to your destination today. Tell us, what are you doing? I am, I am in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, at the 102nd Sioux Falls, South Dakota Farm Bureau Annual Convention, Delaney Howell. Get to, had the chance to MC the luncheon awards program and just actually had to sneak out of Senator John Thune's speech. Nothing looks more professional than a newsman sneaking away from a senator. But uh, I tell you what, it was interesting. I did get to hear Senator Thune talk for about 15 minutes, and the hot topics he was bringing up were topics that are of interest to our listeners. USMCA. Senator Thune says that the USMCA will sail through the Senate as soon as the House gets off their laurels and decides to pass it, or at least put it up for a vote. They believe it'll pass once it gets put up for a vote. It'll sail through the Senate, and it'll sail through President Trump's desk and be signed almost immediately. He said MFP payments going to continue until this Chinese trade war gets sorted out. He is still hopeful that a phase one agreement might be coming along shortly, Delaney, but a lot of mixed signals on that phase one deal. Yeah, absolutely, including some stuff that's maybe not been on our radar because it's not necessarily directly tied to agriculture, Mike, and that is what's going on right now in Hong Kong with those Chinese officials or Hong Kong officials basically carrying out human rights um, acts abuse. And so President yeah. Trump is expected to sign a Hong Kong human rights bill, which is largely opposed by the Chinese people. But this bill would mandate sanctions on both Chinese and Hong Kong officials who carry out human rights abuses and also require an annual review of their favorable trade status that Washington grants Hong Kong. So I think that just puts another little wrench there in the trade negotiations. Yeah, it has been widely discussed from a lot of the the folks I've read when it comes to this Hong Kong Rights Act or the Hong Kong Human Rights and Decency Act or whatever they've decided to, to call this legislation. It is effectively a middle finger to the Communist Party in Beijing. That's nice, a middle finger. Which might, that's that's how it has been described. I mean, it is basically, or we could put it more politely and say, a finger in the eye of the uh, the Chinese central government there in Beijing, which of course is who we are attempting to negotiate this phase one agreement with. Hmm. Yeah, that's a little bit maybe more politically correct. Question mark? Yeah, and we're we're known on this podcast as being politically yes. correct, Lady Hell. Well, you probably well, we do a podcast, but not a radio show. We can say whatever we want. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But it seems... this is America. This isn't China. We can say what we want. We've got freedom of speech. Thank goodness for that. One hundred percent. But Delaney, it's interesting. Seeing Hong Kong potentially lose its favored trade status would be detrimental for American agriculture because, of course, a lot of meat gets transshipped through Hong Kong into mainland China. Hong Kong is the main – Hong Kong and Singapore are the main financial centers of uh, far eastern Asia, and uh, Hong Kong benefits from that quite a bit. And in one of the places we are seeing changes to agriculture is when it comes to the agricultural trade balance. Remember, one of the few places 
where the United States has an annual trade surplus is in agriculture, and ag exports are expected to total $134.5 billion in uh, fiscal year 19, basically from October of 18 through September of 19, while imports are expected to total $129.3 billion. Yes, which means, I, as we talked about yesterday on the podcast. Oh, you've already brought it to our listeners' attention. I did not listen to yesterday's podcast while I was traveling. That's okay. But yeah, that's crazy that it's My the smallest... Trade, smallest trade surplus since 2006, Mike. Yes. Yep, that was exactly what I was just going to say, Delaney. Yeah. Our listeners I, uh, are going to be so well-educated on the balance of trade issues. I, I just read your mind. I knew what you were going to say. Well, that was one of my stories. What other ag <laughs> headlines are jumping on at you today, Delaney? Well, Mike, we are seeing Congress head into their Thanksgiving recess and as you mentioned there, USMCA agreement sounds like it's still something that's on their docket. But another thing it sounds like they really focused a lot of their time on here to get finished before they head to recess is averting another government shutdown. They, we've seen the Senate clear a resolution, a continuing resolution as of Thursday afternoon evening to keep agencies funded until December 20th. So that means FSA offices will stay in open until at least December 20th. So MFP checks, crop insurance, anything like that, that you're needing to go through your FSA offices, we should still see that flow as well. Perfect. A little sigh of relief there from a lot of producers who have probably been too busy in the fields, fingers crossed, to get to their FSA offices. Now they won't have to worry about the time crunch. Yeah, and speaking of harvest season this year, Mike, because it's so delayed, I didn't realize this was even something that was on our radar, but usually the USDA only collects those weekly crop progress data reports until November 25th. That's that's their currently scheduled date to end those reports. But because of this year's late harvests, they are going to have to continue beyond that November 25th date, which would be this weekend, would be theoretically the last survey. Uh, they're thinking maybe December 1st, the next weekend, will be their last week, but still not sure. And I thought that was, I don't know, kind of strange, just something I hadn't even thought of. Yeah, they said they're going to just do a weekly evaluation of all the crops being surveyed to determine when they need to end these reports. So it sounds like they're going to continue at least for several more weeks. You know, I've heard a lot of folks talking about leaving corn standing until March. If that stalls crop progress on corn harvest at 85%, I wonder, will they continue these reports all the way through March until know. the last of that crop is out of the field? That's crazy. I, I, I don't know, and it doesn't sound like they know either. So we'll just have to play it by ear and uh, see how these things uh, get finalized. So you've been hearing from people that they're going to leave the crop in the ground until March? Yes, March or wow. April. I mean, I, I, ideally, they'll get going once the, the ground freezes. But the weird freeze-thaw cycles we've been having have just been leaving the ground. You know, up here in South Dakota, for example, was speaking with a grower who we had several, they had several sub-zero or at least zero-degree days that put a measure of frost in the ground, and then it warmed back up. The sun came out. You know, it got into the mid-30s. The first three inches have thawed out, leaving a hard pan of frost down below. So basically, even with tracks, they can't get any traction in the field, and they're they're just stuck. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's not surprising, but I guess I I hadn't heard from anybody that it would take until March. I, I'd heard maybe January, February timeframe, but gosh, March and April, you're pushing, you know, 
fighting then with getting ready for planting season. Yeah, having the planter follow the combine is not a scenario a lot of growers like to see, but this might be the year that at least some folks have to make that challenging transition this spring. All right, well, that's uh, not great news there, but you got to do what you got to do. Delaney, absolutely. Speaking of doing what you got to do, Delaney, did you talk about the class action lawsuit filed against Burger King yesterday? Uh, No, but I I did see that come across the uh, wires the other day. Tell us about it, Mike. So, a vegan customer, Mr. Philip Williams of Miami, has filed a class action lawsuit against Burger King because he is saying that the meatless Impossible Whoppers are contaminated because they're being grilled on the same grills used to cook actual meat Whoppers. Um, This has infuriated him. He thinks that the Impossible Whopper needs to be a vegan alternative to the regular Whopper. Uh, Burger King's defense is that they never marketed as such. Um, And in fact, on their website, it does say if you need it prepared specially away from other meats, you can request it. And I don't know what they'll do differently, but Apparently, there's a way to do it, but this guy didn't do it. He just was under the impression that the Impossible Whopper was vegan. Since it was cooked on the same grills as a meat Whopper, he says it is not vegan, and he is filing a lawsuit. He is one hot vegan, Delaney Howell. I've got lots of opinions on this, but I'm just going to keep them to myself, other than just... Lay them on us. What do you think? I've got a feeling the only reason this guy's Impossible Whopper tasted halfway decent was because it was cooked in animal fat. Well, exactly. And it's like, if you're trying to be healthy and eat vegan, why are you eating at Burger King in the first place? (laughs) Right. Maybe he wasn't trying to eat healthy. Maybe he's just a vegan for animal rights or whatever. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is like, I would say I'm going to make this statistic up. This is absolutely not true. But I'm going to guess like 80, 90 percent of fast food restaurants that serve French fries or tater tots or whatever Probably like 80 or 90% of those people are deep fat frying those things in like, isn't it animal fat or animal oils? I think McDonald's does theirs in like beef fat, which is why their French fries taste so good. I don't know if they do anymore. There was a big rollback and a change of a lot of their fryer oils here about 10 years ago. And so I think most of them are now fried in some form of veg oil. Well, that's just disappointing. I know. So don't quote me on that either. But I remember this discussion happening, and it, it was probably at least 10 years ago, uh, when trans fats became oh, the right. huge food yeah. villain. They, uh, they, they looked at making some tra- changes, and, and I, don't, I don't know what the, the fat, the, the oils are that those fries are cooked anymore. I just know they don't taste the same. No, I like those right. trans fats, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I well have a- Delaney, that reps- I will say this. I am excited. Tonight at the Farm Bureau uh, dinner, we are going to be unveiling South Dakota Farm Bureau's new beer, which is a pretty cool event. A Farm Bureau is federation with its own in-house, not in-house beer, but uh, branded Farm Hmm. Bureau beer is going to be unveiled. And to pair with that beer, Delaney, guess what type of foods we have the opportunity to sample tonight in Sioux Falls? Um, Beef or cheese. Impossible Burgers oh, and Beyond really? Burgers. So I am going to get a taste 
of this much-touted fake meat here in just a few hours. I will report back to our podcast listeners on Monday how it all tasted. So wait, say that again. You're doing the plant-based meat, but then are you also doing the Petri dish grown meat as well? No, no, no. no. I don't think any of that stuff's really marketable yet. Okay, I wasn't sure. Got it. Yeah, I think that's still like $10,000 a gram. Well, yeah, you'll have to report back to us and tell you tell us what you think on that. But, Mike, I had one other kind of interesting piece of news for today as well before we take a look at the markets, and that is a new pickup truck, if that's what you want to call it, that is rolling out to the markets. Tesla is... Is it the Tesla? Yes. yes. Tesla is putting together, introduced the first electric pickup truck in Los Angeles as of yesterday, and it looks so bizarre. It kind of, I don't even know how to describe what it looks like. It looks like a lot of our listeners might remember the Chevy Lumina minivan from the early 90s. We had one when I was a kid. And so these were the minivans that were designed to be aerodynamic. And they had a very long snout with a huge front window. It basically looks like they took a Chevy Lumina and cut the back seats off and cut the roof off. It is or like, an to ugly me, puppy, in my opinion. <laughs> it is really ugly. Like the bottom half looks like a normal pickup truck. But then when you're looking at the top half, it literally looks like they put a triangle on top of it with like a triangle window. The body of it is triangular shaped. But when uh, CEO Elon Musk was asked why they decided to go into this pickup truck, I guess, sector, if you will, they said from the research that they've seen, um, pickup trucks have the most loyal consumers. And so... They are, they currently account for seven out of 10 U.S. vehicle sales in the U.S., and they're the most loyal out of any other vehicle category. So they thought it just made sense to try their hand at this. The starting price for this pickup truck is about $40,000 and can go zero to 60 in 2.9 seconds. Which is awesome. That is pretty neat. But, but I would I'd never drive one. How fast can it go zero to 60 pulling a 30-foot livestock right. trailer full of cap? I would never I mean, drive this. I mean, it's a pickup truck. I, you know, here's the thing that's interesting. And, and I think Elon Musk is on to something. Electric vehicles have a phenomenal advantage when it comes to pulling over conventional uh, internal combustion engines because at any speed, at any setting, 100% of the torque, 100% of the pulling power is available to the tires. So when you're pulling on something like a livestock trailer, electric engines make a ton of sense because you get that pulling power as soon as you push on the gas pedal. The downside, of course, is that if you're pulling a livestock trailer, you're going to kill that battery in no time and your range is going to be awful, which is not going to do any good for a South Dakota rancher who has to haul those calves 180 miles to the sale barn. Well, it does say that it has the three battery packs that are part of this truck are able to go 500 miles. That's the range they have. So I don't know how that would be affected when you're talking there about the pulling power that it would kind of suck down the batteries. But I'd still think that that would be able to haul a long time, probably not 500 miles worth, but maybe yeah. like half I mean, of this, it. This means, I tell you what. Listeners, if any of you are Tesla loyalists and you plan on buying this pickup as soon as it becomes available, reach out to us. We want to hear your thought process. And if you do end up getting one in the next couple of years, we want to know how it is. Absolutely. Tesla, Elon, if you're listening, <laughs> we would love to test, test drive, drive oh, yeah. one of these pickups and uh, you know maybe loan it to us for a year or so as the Ag News Daily corporate vehicle. And, uh, you know, 
We'll, we'll put it through the test. We will. That we will. We can find things to haul, I'm sure. Oh, for sure, the lady howl. All right, Mike. Well, Speaking I'm out of news. Of hauling, yes. Oh, I am all out of news as well. We better haul bottom over to the markets. What do you say? Do you have them pulled up in front of you? <laughs> I do, Mike. So let's jump on through them today. Looking off here at the December corn contract, closed up just a quarter of a cent and at 368 and three quarters. The March finished down a half a cent to close at 378 and a half. And the soybean pits weakness continues today with the January soybean contract shedding four cents to close below $9 for the first time in quite some time at 8.97 even while the march cut 4 cents to close at 9.11 and a quarter. Wheat was the winner for today's grain markets with the December contract closing up 6 and a quarter cent to end at 5.15 and a quarter. The march up 6 and 3 quarters cents to close at 5.18 and 3 quarters. Hopping over to take a look in the livestock markets and our cattle on feed report does come out today. So we will discuss that on Monday's Market Monday podcast, but trading ahead of the report, there is weakness in the cattle complex with the December contract closing down 65 cents to end at 118.67 and a half. The February shed $1.20 to close at 123.85. In the feeder cattle pits, limit down, I believe, Mike, is the limit down $3.00? For the feeder cattle? No, it's 450 in feeder cattle. All right, well, not quite limit down today with the January contract cutting 332 to close at 139.27 and a half. The March down 320 to close at 139.60. Lean hogs saw some strength today with the December contract adding 57 and a half cents to close at 61.22. The February up 20 to close at 67.65. And rounding out our markets with the dairy class 3 milk futures. The November contract shed a penny today to close at 20.36, while the December added six cents to close at 18.75. Now we're continuing discussions today, and I think it's very fitting we spent so much time talking about what consumers' tastes and preferences are changing to be, because today we've got Jenna Hoffman reporting from the NAFB convention with Hannah Thompson-Weeman of the Animal Agriculture Alliance to discuss some of those challenges that the livestock industry is facing when trying to persuade consumers to buy their products. This is Jenna Hoffman reporting on behalf of the Ag News Daily. I'm joined here at the Animal Agricultural Alliance with Hannah Thompson-Weeman. We're going to talk a little bit about the issues that are surrounding the agricultural industry as always. Uh, Hannah, thank you for joining us today. Really glad to be here and help explain what the Animal Ag Alliance does and what we think farmers need to know. Right. So, Hannah, let's talk a little bit about what the biggest issues are that the animal agricultural industry is facing today. Well, the Animal Ag Alliance, we are a nonprofit, and our mission is to bridge the communication gap between farm and fork. So everything we do is about monitoring issues and communicating accurate science-based information about animal agriculture. We've been around since 1987, so we've seen a lot of things change uh, over the years since we were founded. But one consistent issue that we work on and that continues to be a focus is animal welfare. Uh, So do people understand the way we raise animals for food, common practices that are used, why we do that? 
them. Uh, that's really an important issue that we focus on and that we hear a lot from consumers and influencers is just how are animals raised? Are they being raised responsibly and treated well? Uh, another focus area for us that's really heating up is the topic of animal agriculture's impact on the environment. So you hear a lot of calls from some extreme groups and we're even hearing it some in the mainstream media that if you care about the planet, you've got to reduce or eliminate your meat consumption. So that's a big myth that's out there that we are responding a lot to. The other big focus area for us is responsible antibiotic use. So how are antibiotics used on farm as an important tool to manage animal health and welfare? And how can we respond to calls for eliminating antibiotic use altogether? So those are kind of the key issues that the Alliance focuses on. Hannah, and you mentioned a lot about um, the environment that's especially a hot topic. I think that the younger generations are kind of focusing on that more now as well. I have to mention, I was not raised on a farm, so I kind of have the consumer perspective on a lot of these things. Not that I don't know about agriculture now, because I've definitely learned a lot at school, but I can see how this misinformation would be hard for um, consumers to understand and know where to get their information from. So where are the best places for our listeners that are maybe just consumers and not on a farm for them to get their information from that's a good, accurate source? What you just mentioned is exactly what some of our adversaries are trying to take advantage of. So unfortunately, there are some extreme organizations out there who are just opposed to using animals for food. It really doesn't matter how well they're raised, what the standards of animal welfare are. If we are using those animals at the end of the, the day, they don't believe that is acceptable, and they want to see that eliminated ultimately. So these groups are taking advantage of the fact that more and more consumers are pretty removed from the farm. So maybe have never been on a farm or never learned about agriculture culture. So they're trying to really manipulate that and take advantage of the fact that there is a gap from farm to fork. So I think for consumers, it's really important to look at what you're hearing and kind of where that information is coming from. The more you can connect directly with farmers and ranchers and get your questions answered, that's really great. I know that's not really feasible for everyone to do. So we at the Alliance try to fill that role. We put together a lot of infographics, blog posts, and resources that are all available on our social media channels and on our web websites. Uh, Land-grant universities and extension services are also huge resources. Every state has one. Uh, so that's a great place to look for more information. But really, it's just all about looking for balanced sources and making your own mind up about what you want to eat based on your values and your budget. And that's the position of the Alliance. We aren't here to promote one product or another or one way of eating. Uh, we believe that it's just up to you to figure out what works for you and your family. But make sure you're doing it based on facts and not misinformation or fear. So we mentioned a lot about environment and we've got the antibiotic usage and all this, in this information. Maybe we should go over some of those topics for our listeners. 3.9% is livestock uh, emissions in the U.S. And really, we're a model for the world when it comes to production efficiencies. Uh, so that is a really actually low rate in the grand scheme of things. But certainly, animal agriculture does have a carbon footprint. You know, every food source you could find does. You know, nothing is, nothing comes with no inputs or no production needed. Uh, but in addition to the fact that we're a small piece of the pie to begin with, the industry is also really committed to continuous improvement. So finding more and more sustainable ways of production, uh, pretty much every sector of the industry has pretty dramatically reduced their carbon footprint over the past 50 years. And I think there's only going to be more and more aggressive goals set, more and more innovative technologies put in place to help be more sustainable. Uh, so so I think that's a 
definitely a worthy conversation to have, but I think it's on the industry to try to talk more about what we're doing and explain what we're doing because people definitely care about the environment. Climate change is a very hot topic. Uh, and really for us in agriculture, a healthy environment is a necessity. We can't raise crops. We can't have animals on land if it isn't healthy and productive. So we have a responsibility uh, to both be sustainable, but also talk about what we're doing and why so people can have more of an understanding. Right, Hannah, I think you made a good point that it's easy to see that we have transportation surrounding us as one of those big greenhouse gas emitters, but um, we do have a small footprint, but agriculture has always done so well to try and evolve and um, make a difference, and I think there's a lot of areas that we're improving on, and since the light is on us, of course, we want to try and make that even better for our consumers to understand for sure. There's a lot of technology that goes into animal production today. You know, the way we house animals, moving towards more indoor systems, so that actually has uh, less of an impact on the environment than needing more land and more inputs and things like that. So increasing feed efficiency, so we need less feed. Those types of things are always the industry is focused on innovation. Uh, another area that we hear a lot about that I think the agriculture industry can really embrace is the topic of food waste. Uh, so we're very efficient about producing all this food, but unfortunately a lot of it gets wasted predominantly at the consumer level. Uh, so I think if we really want to throw our efforts and have a lot of conversation around something we could really impact, food waste is certainly an area that we could spend more time on talking about. And I think we as an industry can really come together and try to communicate that message uh, so we can show that we're dedicated to being part of the solution, uh, but also recognizing what our impact actually is to begin with. And our great production is a benefit that we've had across the U.S. And one of the um, components to that success is the antibiotics, like we talked about before. Um, I think that, as like I said, I'm a well, I was just a townie before I came into this industry. So um, I guess that maybe my generation, or I shouldn't speak for all of us, but some of us think that. You know, antibiotics is something like you have to give your cats and dogs, and those are easy things to do, but then they think about something that they're consuming, and it totally changes the role. And I definitely think that we probably need to work on um, trying to get those stories out there more, too, and accessing those crowds. I think that another good way to think about this is you yourself need antibiotics, too, not just your pets, you know. So maybe if people think about it in the perspective of, well, our, our livestock are our kids, too, and they need those antibiotics. I think antibiotic use, it's a very complex topic. It's a lot to kind of wrap your head around. And I think it starts with, as an industry, making sure we are doing the right thing. Uh, and I think the industry has made a lot of strides toward that in a lot of both regulatory efforts as well as voluntary efforts. Um, one example, you know, eliminating the use of growth promotants uh, in industries. You know, that's a role where we can really demonstrate, hey, we've stepped up to the plate and we've recognized this is an important issue. So we're going to do our part and make sure that we're using antibiotics in the dose needed, when they're needed, and really really the least strong antibiotic that we can possibly use so that we are preserving antibiotics for when they're needed and making sure we're not contributing to antibiotic resistance as much as we can limit that risk. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the antibiotics we use in animal agriculture aren't used in human medicine. So they're completely different uh, in medicines and that way they're not contributing to human health issues. Uh, it's also important to help people understand that we have a responsibility to keep our animals healthy. So if there is 
there's a disease threat present or an animal that's already sick, it will be irresponsible of us to not use an antibiotic. So as we think about what our goals are in terms of antibiotic use, it might not be accurate to just say, oh, we're going to eliminate or we're going to reduce because a reduction or elimination might not actually be responsible use. So that's why we talk about the responsible use of antibiotics and making sure we're using, again, the lowest dose for the appropriate amount of time of the appropriate medicine so that we are making sure we keep them as a viable tool in ensuring animal health. And I think it's also important to note that after those antibiotics are administered, the livestock are kept separate for a while and made sure that they're um, you know, they're out of their illness and they can get put back into the herd. It's not like they go to harvest right away. So I think consumers kind of miss that part too. They think that we just um, give them their antibiotics and then send them off, you know? People might see the antibiotic-free sticker in the grocery store and think that that means the other meat on the shelf has antibiotics in it, and that's really not how it works. Uh, even if you do have to use an antibiotic, again, to assure animal health or solve a disease threat, there is a withdrawal period. So the animal, if it's a cow, their milk doesn't get used for a certain period of time. If it's a market animal, they don't go to market for a certain period of time until you can be sure that the antibiotic has left their system. And there's check and checks and balances in place. There's inspections that are done to, again, try to reduce that risk uh, so that you can be confident when you're buying meat at the grocery store, you don't have to pay extra for that antibiotic-free label uh, to know that you're not eating antibiotics in the products that you consume. Right. That brings us to another good point. Labeling is such an issue in our industry right now. Um, do you think that maybe we can start using labeling to our advantage, say perhaps... Um, well, we're here at the Ag Alliance, but all my brain is thinking is um, you see so many GMO-free uh, labels. What if we started being so confident as to say uh, GM made with GMOs, you know, starting to be proud about things like that? Ha was used Antibiotics were used on this animal to save its life, and now um, you are getting to eat, like, reap the benefits, that kind of thing. Do you think that thing would, that, kind, that type of um, communication would work in the future, and do you see that being uh, maybe a topic of discussion? Consumers really rely on labels and information in the grocery store when they're making food purchasing decisions. You know, we're busier than ever as a society, so consumers have said in multiple different studies and panels that they don't have time to do extensive research on what they're going to buy. They pick it up, they look at it, if the label looks good, price is good, taste is good, convenience is good, those are still their primary drivers, they're going to buy it. So I definitely think there's some opportunity for us within the industry to think about how our products are labeled and how we can and better communicate the advantages and really try to promote the way we responsibly raise animals. I have heard some conversations about a responsible antibiotic use type label, that type of thing, um, so that people can look at the pack and say, oh, this was you know raised well, this was produced responsibly, um, I'm going to go ahead and buy this. So that is something that's an opportunity for us to think about the way our products are marketed and how we can make sure that's in a positive way and not all these you know free from labels. Sometimes it seems like we're promoting what's not in food more than what's actually in it. So it might be an opportunity for us as an industry to try to combat that by being more positive. Uh, I think as an example of that, uh, Fair Life, the milk, um, they do have a section on their label that says they don't use growth hormones, but then it says, you know, go to our website to learn more about this. And that actually explains, you know, we don't use growth hormones. They're safe. We only don't use them because there's been pushback from consumers. And I think that's great to give more context and explain why we're making these decisions so people can be more informed. Right. And it seems that consumers are 
obviously becoming more aware of what's in their food. So maybe they would take that extra step to go online and get curious and get some answers. You know, hopefully that's the direction we can go in the future. We just need to change the label game a little bit, I think. Consumers are definitely increasingly interested in where their food comes from and the story behind it. And I think that's an excellent opportunity for us because animal agriculture has an amazing story to tell about continuous improvement, commitment to animal welfare, uh, taking care of the environment. So I think if consumers are listening, we need to step up and make sure we're giving them that information. Because if we aren't there, uh, as mentioned, there are kind of some adversarial groups that want to be there and want to fill in that gap with a version of our story that we wouldn't agree with. So we have to be out there loudly sharing information, talking about what we do. So when our curious consumers do seek that out, they're hearing from us. Right. And maybe that means changing the way that we tell our ag story, too. You know, sometimes it's easy to overhear a conversation and get defensive and want to defend, you know, your pride. I mean, that's your livelihood, all of it. You want to do that. Do you have uh, some advice for our listeners who are farmers that maybe need some help in telling their ag story? You know, it is more difficult than it seems. It's easy to say, but it's it's hard. We really have to move from being defensive and reacting to being proactive and positive. And just from the Alliance perspective, we have a tagline. It's connect, engage, protect. And we actually changed that middle word. It used to be educate, uh, but we changed it a few years ago to engage because it's not about just this one-way flow of information and throwing facts and science at someone. It's about engagement and having a two-way conversation and dialogue where they feel like their concerns are validated and heard, but they leave with a better perspective. So I think for us in Animal agriculture, we have to stop responding and reacting and just talk about what we want to talk about on our own, in our own way, in a positive way. Uh, So thinking about what consumers might want to know and really sharing that is very important. It's also important to, you know, speak with your own voice and, you know, show your personality. It's not just about farm facts. People want to put a face to their food and understand that the people raising their food are, are good people and responsible people. So sharing more of who you are and what your commitment is. And it's not just about social media. I think some Sometimes people hear, oh, social media, I don't want to do that. Uh, But there's other ways to put a face on agriculture. Just being involved in your community, whether it's local civic organizations, sponsoring sports teams, being a volunteer in your your child's classroom. There are a lot of ways you can just be present in your community and make that connection. So when someone hears something or has a question, they know to go to you to figure out more. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close out here, Hannah? I would just encourage people, if you're intrigued by anything we've talked about, uh, would love for you to connect with us. We're very active on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, every day sharing positive information that you can then share uh, with all of your networks. We also have a very robust website with a lot of resources on things we've talked about. That's at AnimalAgAlliance.org. So definitely seek us out, learn more, and let us know how we can help you. Right. Again, just to reiterate, that was the Animal Agriculture Alliance, and I'm here with Hannah. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you so much. All right. Well, a big thanks to Hannah Thompson-Weenan for taking the time to chat with us, Delaney. There are challenges out there, but there are opportunities as well when we look at agriculture. Absolutely, Mike. There's always challenges and always opportunities out there. For sure, listeners, if you want to get caught up on past challenges and opportunities that we have highlighted here on the podcast, visit our website at agnewsdaily.com and find all of our past episodes right there, as well as links to other podcasts on the Global Ag Network, which does have a booth here at the Tech Fair at the South Dakota Farm Bureau, hosted by myself and Mr. Clay Connery from the Working Cows podcast. So if you are a South Dakota Farm Bureau member planning on coming, be sure to stop by and see us. Delaney, they can also find us on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Just search 
works for Ag News Daily and will be there. With that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.